Hello and welcome to The Writer's Mindset with me, Christina Adams. And me, Ellie Betts. Each week we're here to bring you the strategies and advice you need to achieve your writing goals. This week we are talking to Jonathan Taylor about creative writing degrees. Taylor is an author, editor, lecturer, and critic. His books include the novel Melissa, the poetry collections Cassandra Complex and Musicalepsy, and the memoir Take Me Home. He directs the MA in Creative Writing at the University of Leicester. He is originally from Stoke-on-Trent. He now lives in Leicestershire with his wife, the poet Maria Taylor, and their twin daughters, Miranda and Rosalind. He was also a guest lecturer when I did my MA in creative writing, teaching a lesson on one of my favorite subjects, dialogue. When we spoke to him, we brought up one of the most frequently asked questions we get. Should you do a creative writing degree? It's a really personal choice, but there are some people who it's better suited to than others. Stay tuned to find out what he said. A big thank you to our listeners who support us over on Patreon. We really couldn't do this without you. As a patron, you get early access to episodes, bonus content, and our undying gratitude for supporting us and all the work that goes into creating these episodes to inspire and motivate you. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash writers mindset. Every week we ask a different question or do a little mini quiz or game or something at the start of an episode. So this week, I believe you have a question, Ellie. I do have a question. I'm intrigued to know, and I'm sure our listeners will be too. What did your creative writing degrees teach you? The main thing they taught me, and this applies for both my BA and my MA, which I did in different places, was that it really taught me confidence in my writing, speaking and editing abilities. Because before that, the only public speaking I'd really done was like reading someone else's poetry in assembly. And I enjoyed that, but I had no confidence as a performer or like reading something that I had written. And I mentioned before that one of my modules for my BA was storytelling. And that taught me a lot about storytelling, basically, which is a verbal art form. And then as part of my MA, I actually hosted the launch event and only way my classmates would let me host the launch event was if I read my own work at the same time. So I was absolutely shitting it, but I also really enjoyed it at the same time and then carried on doing poetry readings from then on. So it really did teach me a lot about myself as a writer and what I was capable of if I just pushed myself that little bit more outside of my comfort zone and had as much faith in myself as my friends do. That's really cool. I like that. I think it's so important to get out of your comfort zone and to... uh try new things especially when they terrify you sometimes i think for me the biggest thing i learned that i could take away and continue to use afterwards was resiliency i mean there were parts of the degree the masters where i just didn't want to continue and i really struggled to get to the end of the project and i i'll be honest i just didn't care enough at some points to want to continue but I did continue I pushed through you know I paid for this degree I'm gonna can finish it getting to the end and seeing that I can push myself to do that was very good for me and it's something I would definitely take forward um, even when I didn't want to finish the project you know it's, it's hard enough to push yourself to finish a project that you are enjoying sometimes but to be able to do that when I let's say hated the project by the end uh, was much harder but I think I've grown a lot stronger because of it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I saw how much you struggled to finish that dissertation. 
but how you were determined to do it. And I think that it's put you in a very, very powerful position going forward because that first book is the hardest and you've already learned a lot of those skills from doing your dissertation, from listening to this podcast, well, not listening to it, being a part of this podcast and um, from basically all the mistakes you've seen people like me make. Hopefully you can be my cautionary tale. (laughs) I try. I very much try. As a weird coincidence, my uh, degree arrived in the post today. That is a weird coincidence. (laughs) So I can now, you know, put that away in the drawer with the first one and never look at it again. I believe there is one last thing before we jump into our interview that we need to mention. Yes, my latest book, Hollywood Heartbreak, is officially out now. It's full of so much drama and romance, I can't even tell you. Possibly more than any other book I've ever written. And that is saying quite a lot. Yeah, it is. Hollywood Heartbreak is available now on Apple Books, Amazon, Kobo, Google Play, and other good ebook retailers. With me today is Jonathan Taylor. Welcome to The Writer's Mindset. Thank you, Christina, for asking me um, to be here. So can you just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? Okay, yeah. I mean, um, I'm an author, an editor, and a lecturer, and a critic. I teach creative writing at Leicester University. I've taught creative writing for two decades now in university contexts. I also and sort of primarily see myself as a writer, obviously, and I've written novels, two novels, a a memoir called Take Me Home, which came out in 2007, and a couple of poetry collections. So I tend to kind of write across forms and genres. So yeah, and, and I also write critically Um, as a lot of academics do. So you said you've been teaching creative writing now for about two decades, right? You must have some things that you really enjoy over others. So what would you say is your favourite part of teaching creative writing? I have to say, I I love teaching creative writing. I think it's um, the teaching part, putting aside all of the other aspects of working in universities, which are much harder. Um, The actual teaching part is lovely. It's a joy. And actually, um, there aren't many parts of the direct teaching that I, I don't enjoy. Clearly, work is work and that no one wants to do more of it, you know. <laughs> but at the same time, I really enjoy being in a classroom with students who are writing. I love doing writing in class as well as um, the old sort of workshopping thing and, and peer feedback. I actually love doing writing in class. I love the fact that creative writing as a subject, and this is kind of think about it as a subject, um, at university is is a hybrid subject so it kind of allows you to kind of deal with lots of different aspects of creative writing so obviously there's the vocational aspect you know being a writer in the world but there's also because it's a university sort of academic and critical aspects to it sort of think about your work in relation to others there's the reading there's the actual practice of writing you know the craft sort of getting better at the craft. And I, I love that about it, the fact that it's not one thing, it's lots of other things. And it's also like, in many ways, something I say to students who are just starting, it's a kind of Frankenstein's monster of a subject, kind of pieced together by from lots bits of other subjects like journalism and English, but also things you wouldn't expect. Like, you know, I teach, uh, I've always taught uh, stuff about the relationship between science and 
creative writing and how you can draw on scientific subjects. Because the thing about creative writing is that, yes, it's a practice, but you also have to have stuff to write about. So um, you're also kind of doing research into things that you're interested in all the time and other subjects. And I love that about it. That's a long answer, but <laughs> but I I think I think the important thing to say is that I I just love that kind of mixture. Maybe it's it sort of reflects um, my own kind of um, mind. You know, but my mind is a bit like a butterfly; it goes from one thing to another, um, and therefore creative writing suits me. I've never thought of it before as like a Frankenstein's monster kind of subject. And now that you've said that, I can 100% see it. And I graduated in like 2014. <laughs> yeah, it's an image that I use because I think um, Frankenstein's monster, you know, um, uh, there were lots of connections, actually. You know, he was an imaginative and sensitive um, being, but obviously pieced together from lots of other bits. Um, and I, in a way, that is how I see creative writing. One of the big misconceptions I always saw, I don't know if you've ever come into contact with this, is people hear that it's a creative writing degree and they think that they're going to spend however many grand to just sit and write stories all day. And they don't think about the reading aspect, the critical commentary aspect, the fact that you have to basically be able to dissect a story down to the nth degree and do a shitload of editing. Have you noticed either like people who aren't part of the community who have that misconception or even students who have signed up to it who don't actually know what they've signed up for? I think clearly sometimes, and it's not as often as you'd think, but sometimes people think of creative writing as an easy option. Um, oh, yeah. I, I got as, that so yes. much at uni. They thought I'd chosen a DOS subject. And it's yeah. like, okay, I did choose it because there are no exams, but that was for my mental health as much as I want to be a better writer. It's also just rubbish. I mean, I, it's such a ridiculous thing to, to think when clearly writing a novel, um, a good novel, that is, is, must be one of the hardest things you can possibly do. You know, to, to write Bleak House or um, uh, a Shakespeare play, you know, that is not, that is the opposite of easy, you know. So it's, it is a, a sort of strange misconception, I think. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's a common one, but, but I can see that students sometimes get, get stick from other courses uh, about that. But uh, I think people go into creative writing with all sorts of different ideas of what they are going to do and what kind of thing it will entail. And one of the things that I say right from the start is if you are doing creative writing at university, as opposed to doing it in your own time or, or even in evening class, it's all posited on an idea of self-awareness self-criticism that you get better by reflecting on what you've done and so romantic with a big R ideas of spontaneity of your creativity just pouring out of you in a spontaneous flow well that's the opposite of how creative writing is taught as a subject creative writing is taught as a subject according to the idea that you get better through receiving criticism being self-critical learning craft tools and um, reflecting on what you've done reading other things so it's a kind of it's a model that is about yeah about self-reflection in a way that is at odds with the idea of things like innate genius i have to say and um again you know people are welcome to totally disagree with me that i am a nurturist um and i do not believe in innate genius i don't believe in to some extent, I don't even believe in spontaneous imagination. I believe that 
actually you learning to write is learning to write, you know, that, that it's one little tiny step at a time. And maybe to some extent that reflects my own experience because I learned to read and write very late. Um, I was a really slow learner, still, still am in some ways. And, and it, you know, it was painful step by painful baby step. And, and the last thing I'll say on this is that what that means, because I think that means that you can learn it and you can learn the craft. If you have stupid levels of persistence and perseverance, like I do, what that means is that creative writing is a democratic form. Because if you are determined enough, anyone can learn it. Anyone can learn to write well. But it does take years. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. I have to say a lot of the people I know who I've interviewed for this podcast and in general that are doing the crazy things with their writing and have stuck with it tend to be the people who either come to it later in life or the people who have a business background and then decide, I hate this. This isn't what I want to do with the rest of my life. Mm. And that's what gives them the persistence to keep going is the sheer hatred of the corporate world. And someone said to me, another writer, a fantastic writer I used to work with called uh, Will Buckingham said to me once, said, I, I agree with you about the, na- the nurturist um, argument that you learn writing through persistence, but maybe the persistence itself is the genius. Maybe just being, being willing to um, uh, put your whole heart and soul into it for years and years, that's talent. That's all talent is. I think that's something that can be learned as well, though, because I was lazy as hell when I was a kid. I put my hand up to it. Oh, same here. And it was only really, I would say after I did the MA, actually, that I kind of got my ass into gear and started putting Mm. the work in. And I had to learn those skills of persistence. And I was already pretty stubborn, so that probably helped. But I had to teach myself to keep going and to be resilient. And resilience is another really important skill for writers that people don't talk about enough. And it is hard. Oh, yeah. And being willing to put it with endless rejections, you know, and even, I mean, people would be amazed, you know, that that some of the most um, well-known, famous writers still get rejections. It's not that they they stopped getting rejections because they then made thousands of pounds, tens of thousands of pounds on on their work. It's it's that they still get get rejected. So, yeah, I mean, certainly there is that, that element of just, um, carrying on, carrying on, uh, that is important. And I, I agree with you. I mean, I was, I was a terribly lazy, uh, I suppose I shouldn't admit this, but I was a terribly <laughs> lazy stu- student. And I, I sometimes call teaching institutionalized hypocrisy um, <laughs> because you tell people off for exactly the things that you did um, when you were a student. Although, to be honest, parenthood is a bit like that as well. <laughs> I was about to ask that, but I was like, can I say that to someone without kids? <laughs> no, no, you end up telling um, uh, kids off for exactly the, what you did. You end up, and as a teacher, as I say, you end up telling students off for exactly what you did, you know. So um, it's just a cycle. But you kind of learn, don't you? I mean, like, you know, um, you get to an age where where you do want to kind of, you know, you, you've done what you needed to do. And then you do want to apply yourself a bit. It's kind of going through a pain barrier in some ways. I think it is. Yeah. You do the stupid stuff when you're younger and then you get older and you learn from it and then you try and stop other people from repeating your mistakes. But it's almost like they have to repeat those mistakes for themselves so that they can also learn and get to the same position that you're in. Absolutely. It's like a rite of passage almost. History is cyclical. You know, um, every generation does the same. And you see this in writing 
all the time, but what is seen as cutting edge and avant-garde in one generation isn't really often that much different from what is seen as cutting edge and avant-garde in the next generation. When someone rebels against someone else, what they're really doing is imitating them, I think. Yeah. The, the other thing I've noticed is um, fantasy trends. They're very, very cyclical, like ghosts and witches are popular at the moment. A few years ago, it was vampires and it was werewolves before or after that. I can't remember the order, <laughs> but like ghosts are everywhere at the moment. And it's because it's reflecting people's fear of death in a pandemic. And mm. the witch aspect of it is because we want to be able to control things that we can't control. So you're seeing all these witches and ghosts and necromancers. I'm totally part of that trend. I read that stuff. I write that stuff, but I just find it really fascinating that people absorb these trends and don't realize it's reflecting their innate hopes and fears at that moment in time i'm not sure what the vampire thing is maybe it's like a romanticism thing when we're all a bit happier and hopeful i don't know depends on the type of vampire i suppose yes it does um but i know i mean you're right and uh, we all write within a zeitgeist and often we're not even aware of it you know but i um i've been writing a lot of short stories in the last few years, um, and short stories are one of my great, one of my great loves in, in some ways. Kind of one of my, you know, along with memoir, short stories are my are, are the centre of what I do. And and it wasn't till um, I'd written quite a few of them, I thought, oh gosh, they're all about austerity. They're all about uh, what's been happening since 2010. They're all about kind of you know poverty in provincial towns and so on and so forth. But I, I, I had no idea. That, that was what I was writing um, until sort of someone else pointed it, pointed it out. Have you ever heard that phrase that we all write about the same themes over and over? I think it's like the same three themes or something that if you distill everything down, it's the exact same thing told in a different way. Yes, absolutely. And it's, there's a few theories like that, you know, um, uh, sort of, I suppose, what you might loosely call structuralist theories or formalist theories over the last hundred years where, where yes, we recycle the same stories. Um, but just in, in different contexts, clearly with different, sometimes with different outcomes and, and so on and so forth. And, and you do see, you do see that there is that kind of element of it. And it's one of the challenges, and you'll know that as, as a, a, a fantasy writer, one of the great challenges of any writing, but particularly genre fiction, is how do you use these tropes, these conventions, these narratives um, that have been set up that do something just slightly different with them um, how do you kind of take them um, and renew them and and it's really hard I think for a genre fiction writer it's especially hard Oh, yeah. I think my background in women's fiction and romance made it easier because that influenced it so yes I'm writing fantasy but it's hard it's actually about relationships. It's about mother-daughter, it's about friendship, it's about romance. And so that's kind of at the core of it. And it's because the readers love these characters that they keep turning the page. And some of the reviews comment on the world building. And that was the part of the story I was the most afraid of doing because I'd never done it in that much depth before. And my editor, Alexa, she was like, you need to know more detail now because it will make your life easier further down the line. And I'm really glad she pushed me on that first book because now I have less work to do, essentially. <laughs> Yeah, that, but that's fascinating you should say that, Christina. I just think that's really good writing, that the relationships and the characters come first, you know, uh, as Alexander Pope said, you know, but it's the subject is being human. Even if you're writing about robots or vampires or, or, or computers, in the end, the subject is, is what it means to be human. That's kind of the centre of all writing in many ways. Even if you're writing, you know, Lord of the Rings, it's all actually, 
all about human beings, really. Yeah, my big influences when I was working on and kind of planning the Afterlife Call series was that kind of late 90s, early 2000s fantasy where these people happened to have magical powers, but the center was actually the impact it had on their relationships and on their work lives and all this stuff. And I kind of missed that watching fantasy shows. Now you don't see it as much. It feels like there's more of a focus on the magic and then everything else is secondary. And I wanted to go back to those things that were such an influence and such a comfort to me when I was younger and have it almost feel like when you're reading it, like it's a warm hug on a cold day. And yeah, these horrific things are happening to the characters. And I'm sorry if you're listening to this and a fan of the books, horrific things are going to happen to the characters, but that's life. And there's a power to... The characters overcoming these horrific things and finding your way out because it reminds us that we can overcome things and we're certainly never going to have to face anything as horrific as what characters in a book are going to have to face in a lot of cases particularly when it's fantasy or sci-fi or something yeah yeah i mean we've been um like many people we've all been watching squid game recently the netflix series and you know people talk about the world building and that and people talk about the the games and whatever but in the end what really gets you is um the relationships between two or three of the characters and that's that's what carries you along you know and it has to be the center i think i think you know and, and maybe part you know i obviously most of what i write is realist or magical realist but i i, I think that's just as as you say just as relevant for sf and fantasy and horror as it is for anything else i mean the shining you know by stephen king the center of that really is um the boy's relationship with his father and the father's own nervous breakdown the horror is just a kind of manifestation of what's what's going on within the family and Stephen King I think of all writers is aware of that that really the horror is just what's happening psychologically that can be scarier sometimes I think that psychological side of it and if you look at films like A Quiet Place a lot of it is the absence of something that is the scary part it's not the existence of something yeah you know the aliens in A Quiet Place exist it's the fact that most of that film they don't speak because Mm. they can't like literally these aliens could hear a pin drop so they've got to be so careful and they set up the stakes beautifully in the opening scene because this kid has a toy that makes a noise and someone puts the battery in it for the kid the toy i think it's like a um fire engine or something this toy makes a noise once the kid's gone like that and it sets up the genre it sets up the stakes it's such a great film if you like horror and thriller it's so good i i class it as horror but apparently it's technically a thriller so at this point i'm like why do i bother reading genres because i can't tell the difference (laughs) well i must i must watch that i've not i've not actually seen it i've heard of it um yeah and and those tiny details matter so much don't they um especially in horror i was thinking you know Going back to The Shining, I was thinking like actually, when in the in the book as opposed to the film, um, in the book that the scariest chapter I think is just one chapter, and it's and actually it's Stephen King at his very best, where for a whole chapter, you know, four or five pages, it's just a boy looking at this um, fire hose at the end of the corridor and wondering if it's moving, um, and that's all it is. There is no. Wow. There is, there is, and the whole thing is just a description of, is it moving or isn't it? And to me, my hair stood on the back of my neck, all the, all the blood coming out of elevators. Yeah, right, you know, but this idea that maybe it's moving, maybe it isn't. 
um, and being able to sustain that for four or five chapters. So sometimes I think horror is just all about the tiny things, the kind of little details, the symbols. Other than research and underestimating or confusing what it is, what other common pitfalls do you see writers fall into? I think the most common pitfall is the hardest one to pin down, um, which is to do with storytelling. And this is a pitfall that is not to do with how experienced you are as a writer, because actually often young kids know exactly what a story is. And it's something that you unlearn through education in many ways. And that I think, so I don't believe in innate genius. I don't believe that writing is, is natural. I kind of partly do think that storytelling is and that there's something natural about storytelling and that kids kids are often really good at telling stories. And then during your, people's teens, like I say, it gets kind of educated out of you and, 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 and so on and so forth. And actually that ability to tell a story, a really good story, with a beginning, middle and end that engages someone, that has tension, suspense, that makes you want to read on or listen on, is both the most the simplest thing in the world and the most complex, you know, both at the same time. Somehow it's something that is incredibly hard to do and yet is also the most obvious thing of all. And I, I've, I've really come across that quite a lot, that uh, people sort of forget how to tell stories or the story gets eclipsed in their writing by other things. Like, I've got to write really beautifully. I've got to write in this jeweled prose um, therefore, I forget about the story. Or what you mentioned before, the world building eclipses it. So you forget, you, you, you've you come up with this amazing fantasy world. So you forget about that actually your job is to tell a story. And I, I actually believe that, that the, the primary job of a writer is to tell a good story and to entertain, give pleasure to the reader or listener. Now, there's lots of different kinds of pleasure different stories give. But storytelling should be a play it should be enjoyable it should be entertaining in the end all of the other elements of writing come second to that being able to tell a really good story and honestly last thing i'll say about it is that i think a lot of really a lot of writers not they don't just unlearn it when they're a teen that sometimes sometimes actually that it's unlearned between books so you see a writer who writes a really good first couple of books that have great stories and then they go they tail off and I can think of various writers like that where they almost get overwhelmed by what they're doing so they forget that actually again your job I think as a writer is just to tell a really good story in whatever way you can. What would you say to someone who um, has fallen into this trap of forgotten forgetting how to tell a story what advice would you give them or maybe they're the parent of a child whose school is teaching them how not to tell a story and they don't want the child to learn to unlearn that creativity i think some of it's practice but so much of it is just uh listening to your readers and what uh, what are they telling you no never ever ever as a writer becoming divorced from your audience and one of the problems of modern publishing is that of course it is global capitalism and therefore you are writing primarily maybe for readers that you never see or never meet so you don't have that personal connection with them 
I think poetry, to some extent, still retains that kind of communitarian aspect. But most kind of commercial fiction, for example, you are writing, by and large, 90% of your audience is going to be people that you don't have any contact with. And that makes it really hard because, of course, storytelling is a communitarian act. That you, you sit in your, um, uh, in your village under the tree telling stories to people in your village. You know, that's the natural context for storytelling so somehow it's keeping that communication open with with your readers whether that means as you mentioned before beta readers or or whether that means giving performances of your work and listening judging what the audience thinks when you read out whether that means just sharing work amongst you and other writers but never ever kind of locking yourself away from the people who matter, who in the end are the readers. And I am, without being over the top about it, I am a writer who thinks that you write because of readers. They are your reason. I, I'm always sceptical about writers when they say, oh, I only write for myself. You know, I only write, I only write for my own pleasure. And it's like, yeah, but in which case, why are you publishing it? Why are you... Why are you getting it out there? If you just write, I mean, it's fine just to write for yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. But never, I think, I personally think, that if you're going to be a writer who publishes your work, that your job is to, is to, is to be part of a community, and that community is your readers. Communities definitely helped me a lot, like with publishing, with my writing, just generally when I'm having those moments where I'm like, is this what I want to keep doing? Have I had enough? You know that support can make a massive difference absolutely and presumably you have kind of around you other fantasy writers other other ghost writers um and obviously your beta readers as well so there's there's often a community within a particular genre and stuff like that just as poets all 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 stick together um sometimes a bit too much (laughs) yeah and the indie community is really supportive as well like it's not a competition no one feels like any one genre is better than Another, like, obviously the romance genre is often looked down on because it's a women-centric genre. But actually in the indie community, a lot of people admire romance authors because they work harder than anyone else because of how competitive it is. And I think the word competitive is, you know, as you said, it's not, it's, it's not primarily competitive between authors. And I think that's really important. Um, I was lucky enough for, um, to be the third child in a big family and all the competitiveness was between my elder brother and elder sister and uh, they were very competitive and by the time um, uh, they got to me you know I was the kind of um, a thick one of the family um, uh, I was I was always lastic at any games that we played and, and so on and so forth and so and in many ways that means that I, I just don't, I'm not competitive, really. I don't, I don't feel that. And one of the reasons I, I love writing is because it, it shouldn't be competitive, which is why I have, I have very, very mixed feelings about prizes, about poetry competitions, uh, writing competitions. I mean, of course, they, they play a part, but they should only ever play a small part in what, what you do, because you're not competing against other writers. You know, and it's one of those, one of my bugbears is when people say, aren't there enough poets in the world? Aren't there enough creative writers in the world? And it's like, no, actually, aren't there enough politicians in the world or tabloid journalists? You know, actually, um, uh, I'm with Shelley, you know, a whole world of poets would be great. And it would certainly be better than what we've got now. (laughs) 
Mm. I like that idea, a whole world of poets. Mm. Well, Everyone would completely that... change how they view the world if it was, if they were a poet. Mm. Mm. But certainly, like, you know, the idea that there are too many writers or too many artists just seems to me absurd. Mm. Absurd, absurd. And it's like, and again, it's kind of elitist. It's saying, I can be, I can be a writer, but um, no one else no one else can. And you do, you, you hear this quite a lot, especially with creative writing degrees. It's like, you know, kind of, well, what's the point? Only a few of them can ever, can ever make it. And it's like, so you're saying that writing is just for um, the people who, in inverted commas, get to the top of the tree. No, writing could be for anyone. If, if, if it's someone who just likes telling stories or writing poems, then that's great, you know. Art shouldn't just be for, you know, the, the practice of art shouldn't just be for um, a small group of people. It should be for everyone. Who would you recommend a creative writing degree to then? What sort of person do you think could benefit the most from taking that time to study it, either as a BA, an MA, or even as a night class? I think anyone, Christina. I mean, the the, the answer to that is anyone. But I also think that there is something that gets totally overlooked in our kind of instrumentalist, uh, brutal world, which is just enjoyment. I actually say this to people who are thinking of applying, that if writing is something that you really enjoy and that you love doing, then there is no better reason for doing the course than that. If you do a degree, for example, it's three years of your life. And we have this idea, don't we, that which, which has been put around in the last sort of, 10, 15 years, which is that you do a degree and then you get a job afterwards um, and so on and so forth. But actually, uh, why is, uh, you know, say you, say you start doing a degree at 18, why is being 18, 19, 20, 21 less important than um, being 22, 23, 24? You know, that actually what you do in those three years matters and you should enjoy yourself. And if you're paying these appalling fees, you know, and you can tell that I, what I think about, um, uh, I'm totally open about university fees that um that actually do something that you really enjoy that you get pleasure out of because pleasure itself is learning you know and productive and so on and so forth so i actually think there is no better reason to do it than that you enjoy it um, and that you love doing it i mean you have to really love doing it to want to do it for three years you you can't it can't just be a kind of little kind of pastime on the side but I think that love is is really important, and we we you you don't do a course. I mean, I believe in education for education's sake, you know. In that way, I am very old fashioned, and I I don't believe you do a course just for the job that you might get afterwards. You do a course for itself, and therefore, I want to do creative writing because I want to do creative writing. So I don't think there's any better reason than that. One trend that I noticed when I was at uni of something that deterred people or pissed some people off was the critical commentaries which are kind of an infamous part of creative writing degrees so could you just explain what they are and why they're such an important part of studying creative writing particularly at degree level because I think there's something a lot of people can learn from them and even me when I studied it didn't really understand why they're so important. I think almost all degrees, whether BA, MA or PhD, almost all degrees in creative writing involve some kind of what you might call loosely supplementary 
supplementary discourse, you know, a reflective commentary, a reflective essay, a critical commentary, has all sorts of different names across the sector. And they often, as you say, they, they, they form part of the assessment. You know, the, there's the creative writing, which is the big thing, but they're often kind of part of um, the assessment. And sometimes they consist of something like a, an essay in which you talk about your research, you contextualise your work, you talk about your process in writing it. And I think if they're done well, then they are really useful and I think they're there for two reasons firstly because if you're doing a creative writing degree at university it's an academic course so it kind of that's the academic context it caters for that kind of academic context in a way it's one of the things that differentiates it from doing say an evening class secondly it's it's kind of linked to what I was saying earlier about that at university you learn by the idea is, is that you learn to be a better writer by reflecting on what you're doing, by analysing what you're doing and, you know, critiquing yourself, thinking about your own process, but also kind of contextualising what you're doing. So saying, look, I've written this ghost story. I've read these other ghost stories, which helped in my process, in my practice. I've written this, I've read these these books on theory, which uh, theory of short stories or whatever, which have helped in my practice. And in that way that you learn by kind of, again, the learning process, that you learn by a process of reflection and then trying again and then reflecting again and so on and so forth. And that they're kind of in that way staging posts where you say, this is where I am now. This is um, what I think. Um, at the moment, this is my practice at the moment, and this is where I might go, and so on and so forth. It's a kind of idea that you sort of, you learn by doing, because that's part of creative writing, is you actually do the creative writing, you learn by doing, but you also learn then by reflecting on what you're doing. Maybe it's as simple as that. One of the most beneficial activities for me when I did the MA was a critical commentary but I was critiquing the poetry of someone else in my class and their particular poetry was not the kind of stuff that I write. It was very landscapey and I'm more of a spoken word type poet. And so that was, it stretched me so hard, but it was one of my best grades because I worked so hard to dissect this person's poetry and try and work out what this meant and what that meant and how they could have done things better. And yeah, I don't think I realized at the time how useful that activity was to really dissect it because I don't think if I'd delivered the feedback in class and just been kind of presented it there and then, as is often the case, I could have gone into that much depth and really taken the time to think about it and pick it apart. From my point of view, I think you learn so much more by giving in-depth critiques to other writers than you do by just writing on on your own you know but actually I learned so much in the first few years of teaching creative writing about my own kind of aesthetic and critical standards by having to kind of talk about other people's work and as you say especially other people's work that is totally different to your own you know because then you have to kind of think okay I have these aesthetic criteria that I I bring to bear on my own work but how do they relate to this, which is totally different. You know, if I think good writing includes some of these elements, and yet this person's doing something totally different, why are they doing it differently? Does that mean that their writing 
is worse or better, you know. So actually that kind of pushing your, push, pushing yourself to read other people's works, I don't think it's anything more beneficial to a writer, really. Yeah, it's giving feedback to other people, which makes me realise how much I know and how much I've grown, even if mm. I'm uncomfortable giving feedback to other people. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. That's t- totally the case. And, uh, and, it, and you also just kind of, it means that you broaden your own horizons, doesn't it? You know, but you kind of think, yeah, I do think, I do think this, um, uh, but actually, they're doing something totally different. So maybe that's interesting as well. And and you learn so so much. I mean, a lot of people talk about the way in which creative writers sort of, you know, I don't want to use the word plagiarize because that's bad, but but you know, but they do kind of you know imitate other writers and they learn from other writers in all sorts of ways, and then they put things together in their own way. And so I think that is how you learn that you kind of you practice. And you you get such a kind of breadth of different perspectives, and then you gradually put them together and assimilate all of these different influences into your own, and that becomes your own voice. But your own voice, therefore, is just a collection of bits and pieces that you've got from other people. And finding that voice takes time and practice, which is part of the benefit of studying writing. Absolutely. Another big part of creative writing degrees or certainly part of mine is public speaking um i know for some places it's just you do a presentation about your dissertation for me i had to do that and had an entire module in my first year on storytelling and we had to perform a story from memory in front of the class um yeah that was traumatic but i mean trial by fire Actually, no, I've done public speaking before that as well, but I had the script with me. Would you say that public speaking is a necessary part of being a writer in the modern world? I don't think it's absolutely essential, you know, if it's something that you don't want to do. I don't, I don't think it is essential. I think it, for me, I love it. I absolutely love it. And I love, I'm not, I love giving readings, obviously, you know, give lectures all the time as well but I, I love giving readings and it comes back to what I was saying that I mean people talk about you know, public speaking for writers as a way of selling books but I mean you know that's a crap reason for doing anything you know that actually actually the reason for doing it is exactly what I was talking about a few minutes ago which is connecting with your audience and your readers that actually it's the moment that you meet them. You know, you give a reading at a festival or an event or, or whatever it is, and, you know, you, you're, you're actually faced with your readers and you can tell what, just from their reactions, what works, what doesn't, how it works in ways that you never expected. Uh, one of the fascinating things is that you can read the same thing to different audiences and they'll have totally different reactions. I always say that... Um, with the memoir, which I must have performed sort of 200 times, I think. And this is a massive generalisation, but there's some truth in it, that with older audiences, whenever I perform the memoir, they laugh. They laugh at the jokes. With younger audiences, they cry because they think it's really sad. So it's a real kind of, a real difference. Um, and that is a generalisation. But but I think it is just that, just that thing of like, you know, don't you want to meet your readers? Don't you want to sort of connect with them? And that is the, one of the few occasions that you do. What would you say to someone then who wants to develop their public speaking skills but isn't sure where to start? I would say what I said to me, which was that when I first started reading, giving readings, I was so scared. I was so nervous. You know, and it's weird because 
I'd given lectures to 130 students um, over previous years, and that hadn't phased me at all. But somehow reading my own creative writing was much more daunting. And I've seen this with, I've taught drama students where they're used to giving performances uh, all the time. And yet when it comes to reading their own poetry, they they go really quiet and can't cope with it. So it, it, it can be, but it can be daunting. And all I can say is that people tend to be very patient. And that, yes, the first two or three readings can be very, very hard. But once you've done it a couple of times, it becomes uh, it becomes just a huge pleasure. So it's just a matter of kind of getting used to it and practice. And if you have a, I mean, I, I'm, I have, I grew up with stammer. So I find some aspects of it quite difficult. But actually, the more I do it, because it's my writing. When I get into the writing itself, the stammer almost goes because uh, I kind of, uh, I know it so well. I don't, I don't know why it is even, but it, it just sort of flows much, much more. But if you have, you know, the, the, the ways and means, and if you have, for example, a quiet voice, always use a mic uh, because they're really useful. And, you know, I think... People are people are very patient. I think always. I, I suppose if I was going to say the one thing that I think the one the one thing that people do lose patience with is anyone who goes over time, and never ever 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 times a thousand talk for more than your allotted time in any event. Because uh, and I'm speaking here as an academic, and academics are terrible at this. I've been to talks um, at conferences where academics have uh, were given 20 minutes and then talked all the way through lunch. And people were so angry. My stomach was angry. So it's kind of, I think, as long as, as long as you don't do that, which is the cardinal sin, then I think people are, people are really kind. And the more you do it, the more you'll get used to it. And in the end, I just love it. So speaking as someone who, who found it really hard to start with, it is now one of the great pleasures of life, I think, to connect with an audience in that way. I remember when I was a kid, I was one of those who would get up and read an assembly and it was usually a poem. So obviously I enjoyed that as a poet. And I always used to feel like really nervous physically beforehand, like my stomach could be going around and I'd be a bit jittery. And I remember standing up waiting to go on stage and I just thought to myself, why do I feel anxious when I want to do this? And it kind of created a shift in my mind because the physiological responses of anxiety and excitement are the same. And so if you are consciously aware of the fact you want to do something and you're looking forward to doing it, but you're feeling anxious because it's new, you can kind of shift your perspective mm. and it takes a little bit of time and it's not something that is easy to explain how to do, but it does work and it made a massive difference to me. And the other thing that made a difference to me was when we did the launch of our anthology Restless Minds in 2014, I wanted to present it, but I didn't want to speak because I wanted to go look how awesome everyone else is, but then kind of shrink into the background. And everyone from the lecturers to my classmates was like you've got to read you've got to read you've got to read and I eventually agreed and the only criticism someone gave me was that I ran off the stage too quickly after I'd finished my poem so I couldn't get the round of applause mm. 
I remember. I remember Christina. I remember you reading, and I remember you presenting really well. It was fantastic. Yeah, and and I mean that's really interesting, isn't it? The the relationship between um, anxiety and excitement. I think that's right. I mean the advantage you have is as as a writer giving a reading, giving a performance, is that uh, is it is it physically there's I mean yeah you sometimes see people shaking or trembling but that's a tiny thing all you're doing is reading out and whereas you know I used to I used to do concerts um I wrote wrote music and used to give the odd concert as a as a pianist and with piano if you're nervous it just wrecks it because your leg is shaking so you can't do the pedal and your hands are shaking so you can't play the keys properly where you don't have that problem (laughs) as a as a as a uh, as a writer, because you just got a book and you're just reading from a book. So in a way, it's 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 one of the easiest forms of performance. And I would I would I mean the, the other thing I would say is that is that you know no one ever minds whether you you don't you know you were talking about learning stories the storytelling in the first year, which is that's so hard because most people you know most poets and novelists they read just from a book and there's nothing wrong with that you know having a print in front of you and that helps I think I have that prompt I can't learn I can't learn anything I forget every sentence after I've written it so yeah same I um, remember actually one of our lecturers said even if he's memorized a poem, he likes to have the book in his hand because it kind of adds to the performance to have it there. And it's probably free marketing as well. Let's be serious. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, and funnily enough, that is the same with piano playing is that uh, in a way I know that I, I know off by heart some of the pieces that I play, but I need the music in front of me these days just as a kind of uh, prompt just as a prompt. And, and it's not even, I'm looking at it. I just, I just need it there as a kind of, um, yes, a re- almost reassurance, I think. Yeah. Um, when I do mine, I usually have it on a tablet instead. And then I make the font size really, really big so that I can look at it, glance at the line and then look back up at the audience or the spot on the wall so that then <laughs> you're getting the eye contact and you're not losing where you are because I'm notorious for if I'm trying to read something in like a size 12 font and then trying to look up, I'm going to completely lose where I am. But if it's like a size 20 on a screen and I'm constantly moving, then it's a lot easier for me to not lose it. And like you say, sometimes you just need that prompt. You don't necessarily need to remember the entire thing before you look back up. You just need something to go, oh yeah, that's the next bit. And sometimes it is, as you say, it's it's the case that something I often say to students is what you need is is you need to be reading ahead slightly. So so each sentence you think, right, I've read the the first couple of words of that sentence, so I know what where that sentence goes. So then I will look up at the in the second half of each sentence at the audience if you see what I mean. So so you kind of pace it like that. So you're always kind of including the audience. As I said, I think, I think people are generally very patient, you know, with, with poets in a way they're not with stand-up, you know. Uh, if, if poetry was stand-up, there would be a lot more, war, <laughs> a lot more heckling. I suppose with 
stand-up, the only expectation is that they're funny from the get-go, whereas with poetry, it's a wide range of emotions, so you don't really know what to expect, and so there is less pressure because you're not trying to be funny or dramatic or angry or whatever, and even if like your intent for a poem is for it to be funny, like you say, someone else might interpret it as heartbreaking and sit there crying because everyone interprets things differently and i guess that makes stand-up even harder as well yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's it's that as you say it's all about the audience's expectations what do they um expect expect of you and um i mean this in the politest possible sense but often poetry audiences expectations are quite low you know that they they um uh or or maybe a more polite way of putting it is that they are flexible, you know, their, their expectations are flexible. Yeah, I've seen poetry audiences at open mic nights and how, like, supportive they are when someone's breaking mm. it. They'll, like, give them a round of applause or just, like, po- I, I guess the best way to call it would be, like, positive heckling, like, come on, you can do this. Like, being supportive, being patient, getting them a drink. You mm. know, when someone's sitting there physically shaking and then they read it and what they've got is brilliant they're just mumbling into their paper because obviously they're nervous and it's their first reading so you kind of expect that right yeah absolutely and you know um i think that's one of the uh beauties of open mic is that actually it does give people the chance to practice and you know sort of space in which people can kind of try things out and and get things wrong and and God, you know, we all we all get things wrong sometimes, you know. So it's kind of it's giving people that chance to, um, uh, yeah, to experiment. Going back to books, then, what's one book that changed your life? Um, that's a really interesting question. That, uh, you know, and I would give different answers, Christina, every time someone asks me that uh, because there are so many on there. I mean, like you know, in a way, every book you read changes your life, even if you don't like it. That's that's that changes your life. The whole point of writing is that you're trying to change people's lives, and or reading um, is the, uh, as I say, you want to learn stuff, change things. I suppose. This time I'm going to choose Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham. Uh, so Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham is this, if you don't know it, um, is this wonderful uh, American children's book uh, all about someone who doesn't like green eggs and ham. And then the whole book is poetry and by the end realises he does like green eggs and ham. And it's all poetry and it's incredibly musical. And the reason I've chosen it is because it literally changed my life in that when I was, something I said earlier was that I was uh, a very, very slow learner as a kid and that I didn't learn to read and write until I was sort of eight, really. And that was the book where I finally cracked the code. And one day I started, so to me, uh, writing you know, I loved the look of books. I used to apparently sit on the, the landing, stroking shake, the complete works of Shakespeare when I was five. But it was all the it was all code to me. It was it was a sort of alien code. And Green Eggs and Ham. I think the reason that that was the first book that I I, I first read and I got um, and I cracked the code with it 
was to do with the fact that it is musical, uh, it is uh, poetry, and it's something about the musicality I kind of understood before the words. I remember sort of saying, oh, I can read this, I can read this. I was so excited. And my brother and sister um, saying, oh, no, you've just learned it off by heart. Whereas what, what, I, what I think now is that actually that learning it off by heart um, because it was so musical, because it was so poetic, is actually part of learning to read. That learning by by rote um, for me was the way in which I got into it. And I suppose ever since then, I've kind of um, had this idea that what books are most is music. That that the uh, the best stories, um, in a way, are, are forms of music. That you kind of you understand them in that way first. Um, and then maybe you get the kind of uh, the, diff- the other aspects of it. Um, so it kind of changed my life because it was probably, you know, if I were, uh, the very first book that I ever read. I love that idea of it being about the musicality of it because I think too often people forget you can have the musicality of it, even if it's a story or a poem. People think they're separate things, and actually when you combine them, it can be really powerful, both in terms of enjoyment and also in terms of memory, like you say. And it also, like, I think it's the reason why people love Dickens. Is I mean, not everyone does. I mean, I know that I'm aware of it, but 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 why why some people love Dickens um, is because of the musicality of it. That um, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, you know, or, or fog everywhere in Blake House. That, that the first two or three pages of it. Every Dickens novel it is just music. It's it, it's it's almost the, you know it's almost uh, the story is neither here nor there. You're reading it. Um, it's like someone's um, started a piece of music, you know. And um, what an amazing way to start a novel, by the way. So I think that musicality of good writing is something that's underrated in many ways. Um, I think I think that all the best writing is kind of performative. You know, it's like there is a kind of performative element to it and a music musical element to it um, or maybe that's just the writing that I love I'm not sure I'm the same I like it to feel natural and there is a natural poetry to the way a lot of people speak and I have compared screenwriting and fiction writing and copywriting and blogging to poetry before and whenever I do that I get mass unsubscribed from my mailing list because people don't like the comparison oh wow I wonder why I'm not sure if it's the poets not liking the comparison or the people who are afraid of or prejudiced against poetry who don't like the comparison. I haven't worked it out yet, but I just find it really fascinating. As soon as I mention the P word, <laughs> people just panic. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that, that, that but, is incredible. I think people think that poetry is one thing, that poetry is, is kind of something that you study um, at GCSE reluctantly that's written by... Um, uh, often early 19th century white guys um, uh, and you do you then have to answer questions about it and they they think it's a puzzle they think it's difficult but you know poetry is everywhere Christina poetry um, isn't isn't just you know something by Wordsworth much as I love Wordsworth poetry is everywhere poetry as you say is in copywriting I mean politicians speeches are 
or poetry, whether they're good poetry or not, is <laughs> is another matter. But they are they use poetic techniques and um, metaphor and um, repetition and cadence and all this sort of stuff. So actually, poetry is just as you say, part of everyday speech to a lot of people. And you know, one of the things that I love writing most is dialogue. You know, my 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 stories. Uh, you know quite possibly my novels are radio plays really masquerading as novels you know I love I love writing dialogue you know it's one of my my great loves and the way people speak in everyday in in just everyday context on the bus or, or whatever is is poetry yeah wrapping up then where can our listeners go if they want to find out more about you talk poetry or dickens with you <laughs> Um, all of those would be great. People can find me on Twitter. Um, it's at Crystal Clear JT, and they can uh, find me on my website, which you just have to Google Jonathan Taylor author, and it will come up. Um, and they can also find me um, on a, a blog that I run, which is called um, uh, Creative Writing at Leicester.blogspot.co.uk. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fun. Thank you, Christine. It's been a huge pleasure. Did you find this episode enlightening? Don't forget to hit that shiny, shiny subscribe button so that you never miss an episode. Or if you're watching on YouTube, hit like and subscribe. It helps other writers find our videos and lets us know what kind of content you want more of. Frankie looks like he's gonna kill me. <laughs> he just huffed <laughs> at me really bad. <laughs> the stare that I was getting just <laughs> fluffy paw. You can also support the writer's mindset over on Patreon for less than your favorite coffee a month. Join us to listen to bonus content to help you improve your craft and your mindset. Get early access to episodes and more. Visit patreon.com forward slash writer's mindset to join our gang. See you next time. Keep writing. We'll try to. I I can't even think of a joke about Frank about Frankie making those noises. (laughs) The mic normally doesn't pick up his growling. Yeah, I can hear him, and he sounds as grumpy as Millie has been for the last two days. I don't know if it's like the weather making pets smarty or what. Look at that grumpy little bum. But he full on grumpy bum is making the noise that says like "Get the fuck off me." Put me down, human. <laughs> I did not agree to this. <laughs> <laughs> that told me.